uh, I promise that it's good to be back here again, by the way. Good to see you all again. And I promise that unless the Spirit so moves, I won't sing any Johnny Cash songs today. Uh, so, you know what was the coolest thing about being here last time? And I don't remember the man's name, but he had two little twin boys. And he came up to me and he said, my boys are Johnny Cash fans. And they were like maybe five or six years old. And I'm going, wow, that's awesome. So anyway, but I promise I won't try to do that today. Um, the prayer was great, though. Yeah, that you wouldn't focus on externals, including me, but hear the voice of God through the scripture. That's the main, that's the main goal. And uh, just to let you know, I get nervous every time I have to speak in front of people. And I think that's the reason, because I'm not trying to give a good speech. I'm trying to have the Word of God communicate with people. And so keep on praying as we go through this that that's exactly what will happen. So today, uh, Pastor Jeff scheduled us to start on the letter of Philippians, one of Paul's letters. And so he gave me the whole first chapter. So I'm going to try to do a synopsis and say a little bit about the whole thing. Not everything, but a little bit about it as a whole. So let me give you a brief introduction, just very brief. It was written about 62 A.D., uh, Paul was in, in prison, in a Roman prison, for preaching the gospel. Not as a criminal, but for preaching the gospel. And he was writing to the Philippians. He had a special affection for them because they were the only church at that time who was supporting his ministry financially, and they kept on doing that even when he was in jail. It's been called the Epistle of Joy, and I'll have something to say about joy uh, Paul mentions it 12 times in the letter, and which is really remarkable since he was writing from jail. I don't know if you've ever been in jail, but I have been, and when I was there, it wasn't a very joyful experience, and I, I'm not sure even had I been a Christian at the time, I would have been able to maintain a joyful attitude in that place, but Paul did, which is remarkable. And then uh, Philippi was a city that's, that's located in north eastern what's northeastern greece today and so um there it is right there you see it very good so northeastern greece it's on a highway called the via ignatia that connected europe with asia or what we today call asia minor minor turkey and so on so that's where he's writing from it was a strategic city a roman colony and it was on one of the major highways of the empire and the Roman Empire was known for its highways connecting its vast uh, territory with each other. And you could actually travel those highways and be more or less safe uh, because of the Roman power. So I have, I have uh, about six points I'm going to make. They're short, uh, so uh, hopefully it won't take a whole hour. I'm, I told the Yvette, or, uh, uh, our, our slide person, about 30-ish minutes, so I'm hoping to stay to that. But my first point is this, living, I'm talking about living for Jesus. And the first thing I want to do is to say that living for Jesus means living with joy. So verses 3 to 4 say this, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Paul had joy because he remembered their conversion, not only, but he also was aware of their financial support. He was able to eat every day only because they were supporting him financially. That's what bought him his food. The prison didn't feed you in those days. You were responsible to get your own. So, so he had joy. He makes 12 references, and again, remarkable since he was in jail. And uh, so, so what is joy? I want to ask what it is, 
And I'm going to say something that I didn't always agree with, but now I do. Uh, I think joy is a feeling. And the reason people don't like to agree with that is that our feelings go up and down, and they do. Uh, but I want to tell you, I had to resign as the pastor of what used to be Bethel Reformed Church, now, now uh, uh, Encounter Christian Church, because of severe, and severe depression and extreme anxiety. And so I was so depressed, and I would say for about five years, I had no joy at all whatsoever. And I, I remember telling my wife during that time, I, I, I told her I was so, it was so depressing that I said, uh, I, don't, I don't believe I'll ever get better, but I can't not believe. And the awesome thing was, she got me enrolled in horseback riding lessons. The closest thing I got to joy during those five years was riding those horses. And there was a day, I remember it distinctly, I was sitting on my couch reading the Bible, I'll share the passage with you in a minute, but all of a sudden I felt joy. It's different. It's like happiness, but it has a different source. That's what I want to say about it. And so God healed me. I don't have depression. I still get sad. Everybody gets sad. But I don't have the depression I used to have, nor the extreme anxiety. So that's why I say joy is a feeling. I didn't feel it at all for a long time. And then when it came, it was like the sun breaking through the clouds uh, on a stormy day. So I think it is, I think it is a, a feeling. It's a feeling of well-being. Of happiness, sometimes people contrast joy with happiness. I'm going to give a different slant on that. You don't have to accept it, but I'll just, just give you my 10 cents about it. It's, it's having delight or excitement about something. So it, it is a feeling, to, to me anyway. And, um, and, and what I've known uh, because of my uh, mental breakdown that I had is that it's possible to experience joy and sorrow at the same time, it's possible. I've done that when loved ones have died, and I'm sorrowful because they're no longer with us, but yet joyful knowing that they're with the Lord. And those can happen at the same time. The reason being that our joy is based on something that's over and above anything that can make us sorrowful. There's always that, that resource, that, that well that's available to us for joy. And so, so I want to say that joy and happiness are the same thing, What's different is, people like to say, well, you know, happiness um, is, is something that's dependent on external circumstances where our joy comes from God. But I'd like to say that joy and happiness are the same. The difference is what people say is what our source for that happiness is. At any given time, the source for my joy or happiness can be something out there, and it's not wrong to have it on something out there. It's just not a good idea to have that be the number one source of joy for you. The number one source of joy is always, always Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit living within us. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And so there's always a potential for joy. Now, I, I won't always feel joy. I still don't always feel joy, but I can always take an action of rejoicing, meaning saying to God, I'm thankful to you, God, for, and then there's the list. Or I'm excited, God, I don't feel joyful, but this is still true. And so that answers the, the, the second question that I raised. How, how can I live as a joyful person? We don't want to have it just be an idea. We want to have it be a reality. 
Well, the first thing is to remember it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something He generates. It's not the result of positive thinking, although our thinking is involved. It's something the Spirit generates. Paul says in Galatians 5, 22-23, he lists the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So if you are a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God, who is God, equal with God in every way, lives in your physical body, and so there is always, always a potential for joy. So what do I do to, to be joyful when I'm, quote, unquote, in prison? Not everybody's been in a real one, but it's a, it's a word picture also, you know, for uh, difficult and hard circumstances, uh, for depression and sadness, and so on. What do we do to be joyful in those times? And so the first thing, if it is a fruit of the Spirit, the first thing that I do is I ask God to fill me with the Spirit and generate joy for me. It comes from Him, number one. And so we can do that. The second thing I try to do is to rivet my thoughts on Jesus and on God. Because if I have them, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I tend to obsess on things, and sometimes, quite often, not the right things. And it's not uncommon when I do that that my joy begins to dissipate. And so I have to be careful. Joy is not the result of positive thinking. It's the result of the presence of the Holy Spirit. But my thoughts matter. It matters what I think about. And so when I'm not joyful, uh, I, you know, it takes me a while to notice that even sometimes because I'm very used to being depressed. Uh, but when I notice it, I, I try to rivet my thoughts on Jesus. And then I start to talk to myself. So I'm going to give you an example of that from Psalm 42. This is David writing. And David, King David is very out there and kind of in your face and totally honest about what's going on in his heart. He doesn't try to be happy when he's not. But he wants to be joyful when he's not. So here's what he says, verses 3 and 5. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Then verse 5 says this, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope, hope is not positive thinking, by the way, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down. So he's very honest with himself. He's not trying to pretend that he's not very, very sorrowful. He's very open about it. He admits it, but then he says, My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. I remember you. David's life in the Bible begins when Samuel came to anoint him as king, and the Bible says that the Spirit of God left Saul and came upon him. And so he has the source of joy that's available to every follower of Jesus and it matters what we think about. So when you're not joyful, ask God to fill you with the Spirit and think about God. Remember what He's done. Remember what He's going to do. Okay, so point number two, living for Jesus means living by prayer. Now, prayer is supposed to be you know, very central to the Christian life. Uh, let me just say this. It's not some hyper-spiritual discipline. It's merely, and I say merely uh, in quotes, it's talking with God. 
And I'm not trying to oversimplify it, but I'm trying to bring it down to our level. When I was the pastor at Bethel, I sometimes, or I was the youth pastor there, rather, I sometimes would have to lead the senior citizens group in their prayer time and Bible study. And so they'd pray for about 20 minutes before they'd start, and there was a guy there, um, I think his name was Everett, but anyway, he could pray as eloquently as the Pope, if you, if you know what I mean. And so when he would pray, I just would, I didn't dare say anything after that. I'd just say amen and we'd start. But you don't have to be eloquent. And prayers don't have to be long. They can be short. But they do have to be regular, even constant. And so, so it's important. For example, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, pray like this. God already knows what you need, so don't be like the pagans and try to, you know, pile up all the words upon words upon words, thinking that's going to get God's attention. But pray like this. And then he gave one of the shortest prayers ever, right? And that's Jesus telling his followers how to pray. So you don't need to be eloquent. You don't need to be short, but it is important. Martin Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And that is because for most people, the life of following Jesus begins with a prayer of some sort, confessing our sins and then confessing him as Lord and committing ourselves to him as Lord. So prayer is important. So it's important because uh, it, it deepens our relationship with our creator and savior. So Mary, imagine you're married to somebody you're living in the same house with this person, or maybe it's a good friend you share an apartment with or something, but you never talk to each other, right? Now, my wife never gives me the silent treatment, so that hardly ever happens at my house. <laughs> but imagine that. I've known people that were kind of like that. They live in the same home. They're even married legally, but their relationship is not growing and deepening. It can't unless we talk to each other. God has made us in his image, and we grow by communicating with each other as people. We also deepen our relationship with God as we talk with him. So, so I've said, you know, um, that prayer can be simple, and prayer is for establishing our relationship. Why should we pray if God already knows what we need? This, is good. this, this blows my mind sometimes. That God delights in us. God takes joy in us. And he loves it when we talk to him. I can remember when my girls, my daughter Sarah is here with me today, by the way. So I'm really glad to have her. My wife is still in Indiana, so she's not here. Yes, give her a hand. But I remember when she has an older sister named Leah, when they were a little bit better than toddlers, and I would come home from the office and their faces would just like light up when I walked in the door. And that's the kind of delight that God has in you and me. He delights in us. He gets excited when we talk to him. And when we talk to him, our delight in him grows too. So that's the first thing. The second thing that prayer is important about is that prayer is first and foremost, number one, and and an acknowledgement of God's eternal power and glory. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But the second request is this, 
and I'm the King James Version. I, I still like that the best. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, listen to this, on earth as it is in heaven. Alex said earlier that we don't have to wait till we go to heaven to worship before God's throne. Jesus, when he said the kingdom of God is at hand, didn't mean it's coming soon. He says, it's here because I'm here. Paul says in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is here. So our, our number two request should be that God's will would be done on earth through us just as perfectly as it is in heaven. Is that even possible? Not for every single moment of my life from here on into the future, but it is possible. I've seen God work through me when I've been obedient to him or work in me when I've been obedient to him. It does, I don't bat a, a, a thousand, but I had, a, I had an Old Testament professor who once said, he said, life is like baseball. He said, if you get on base one out of three times, you're going to be making a lot of money. <laughs> now, don't apply that. Okay, so I only have to be God once out of three times. I'm just saying uh, that we can't, we can't bat a thousand, but we can do the best we can, and it is possible for that prayer to be answered. So we pray so that our, our will and our life is surrendered to him. And then my third point is this, that living for Jesus means living in love. Paul's prayer was this, it's my prayer, verse 9, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Now, this is familiar stuff. You all know, I'm sure, by now, sitting under Pastor Jeff, the great commandment by heart. Uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 30 and 31, carry it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's the first and great commandment. And so let me say this. It's impossible for us to do that unless we receive God's love first by faith. We have to be loved by God before we can love him back. It's not something we can do without him. To love God with your whole being like that, your whole being needs to be changed from the inside out. And so that's why the Apostle John says, in chapter 1, verse 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. And it's always important to keep that sequence in mind. Otherwise, our attempts at loving became, become dry and empty and forced and inauthentic. But how much does God love you, by the way? I used to ask people a rhetorical question. I used to ask this question. Just to get a discussion started, who does God love more, Jesus or you? And I really didn't expect an answer, didn't think there was an answer. And then I told you about a morning when I felt like joy broke through, like the sunshine breaking through the clouds in a stormy day. I read these verses from John 17, verses 22 to 23. Listen carefully. The glory you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So that, number one, 
the world may know that you really did send me. But number two, and, and love them even as you have loved me. And I remember I had read that passage, I don't know how many times before that, but one morning I was sitting on my couch, closest thing I have to a man cave, and uh, reading that verse, and I, I felt healing come, and I felt God's joy break through. It, that, that written word became the living word, and it, it changed me on the spot, in the moment. And so when I'm lacking joy, when I'm lacking love, those are one of my go-to verses. That he, God, loves me just as much as he loves Jesus. Not a rhetorical question. That's what he sent Jesus to show us. And I wouldn't even dare to say that, except that Jesus said it. And so I'm not going to bet against him. That's how I'm going to answer that question. Well, the second part is this. <clears throat> that we love our neighbor as ourself. And uh, so... So let me just say this about that, that the root of sin is seeking to find our joy and well-being and purpose in life and all that in something other than God. That's one root. Another root of sin is, is, um, see, is to ignore the happiness and well-being of the people around us. Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, and then he told the parable of the Good Samaritan, quote-unquote, where he says that even your worst enemy is your neighbor. And you've got to love them, not just in your mind, but with concrete action. All right? So, so and it's not, it's not that we need to learn how to love ourselves so that we can love other people. We already love ourselves in a way. And I'm, I'm stealing these thoughts from John Piper. Um, I don't know if you know him or not, but he's a great author and preacher. And uh, so he said, we already love ourselves, and this is what he means by that. He said, you already seek your own well-being with all the energy you've got. That's what you do. That's, how, that's what our lives consist of. So he says that loving your neighbor yourself means this. Seek your neighbor's well-being with the same passionate energy that you seek your own well-being. That is... That is a high standard to live up to. And uh, so just let me, let me be honest with you. It's not one that I measure up to consistently. If I were batting 300 in that area, I'd be pretty darn pleased with myself. I don't think I am. But that's the goal. That would be the goal. That we are known for being loving people. Not just people that have good friends and we like the people that like us. But we seek to express God's love to everyone, everyone around us and with us. So living for Jesus means living in his love. And then living for Jesus means being pro-gospel in all circumstances. So let me read verses 12 to 14. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So he's in jail, right? And he's saying, God is sovereign. He's used this to preach the gospel to more people. I don't know if I could have said that. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ and not for criminal behavior. That's my parentheses. 
And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So living with Jesus, living for Jesus, means being pro-gospel no matter what is happening. And again, that's a tremendously high standard. It requires a faith in God's sovereignty. But Paul said, hey, I'm in jail here. I'm not a criminal. You all know that. And now all the people around me know that. The imperial guard knows that. Now, the imperial guard was an elite corps of, I don't know if you'd call them soldiers, but they were kind of like the secret service guarding the president of the United States. They were responsible for protecting and guarding the emperor. So, so they were like Navy SEALs, you might say, or Green Beret. And if you, can, if you think soldiers are hardened and tough guys today, imagine what it would have been like then, right, in the Roman Empire, where they didn't even know the real God. And Paul says, they all know now that I'm here because of Jesus. They know I'm not a criminal, which means they must have heard the gospel from Paul or through Paul's associates. So he says that. And um, he was also a disciple maker, disciple maker. He was not only passionate to share the gospel himself, he was passionate that the people who knew him would also be passionate to share the gospel. So he says, not only that, not only but I, I've been able to disseminate the gospel, but most of the brothers, that is, most of my fellow Christians around here, when they've been looking at me, now they've become fearless. They're preaching the gospel themselves among these Roman soldiers who maybe Paul didn't know for sure if he was going to live or die, get sentenced to death or be released. That's courage. So Paul says in verse 20, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And so I just ask us all to consider, you know, would we put ourselves in that kind of category today to say that we are ready not only to believe the gospel, but to proclaim it and share it with people to the death if necessary. You know, and if, you, if you're thinking, well, I, I don't think I'm right there right now, don't write yourself out of the kingdom. It just means that we need to grow. This, this is, Paul means for this to be the consuming passion of our life, too, that we would be pro-gospel, not only believing it, but sharing it, living according to it in every circumstance in which our life puts us. To see God's sovereign hand in everything and to always be praying and watching out, being alert for an opportunity to share the gospel. So let me just ask, are we, are you or my, are we passionate about sharing the gospel? Let me ask a similar question. Do we regularly pray for lost people? That's the place to start, by the way. If, if sharing the gospel is not part of your life, just start asking God to spread the gospel to lost people, and he'll start sending people in your life, and they'll start showing up in your path, and you'll find those opportunities. And so if you're not, again, don't write yourself out of the kingdom. It just means that it's an area where we have to grow. And believe it or not, I myself have to remind myself 
to keep on constantly praying for the lost. So it's not, it's not like you're substandard if, if that's not regular in your life. It just means that you're kind of normal, and we have to keep our eyes on that. That God is concerned for lost people. They matter to him. And so let me ask you this question. Do you, when you think about sharing the gospel with someone, does it make you nervous? It still makes me nervous every time I get the chance. At the beginning of my Christian life, I used to be afraid of not having all the right answers. And I had a really good pastor who mentored me who said, Dave, if you don't have the right answer, if you don't know the answer, just say so. And tell them that if they're really interested in that question, you'll try to find an answer for them. And what I found is that in most cases, people are good with that. They respect you for admitting that you don't know everything, because we don't. Maybe we need training. And uh, let me tell you this, too, that introversion is not an excuse for not sharing the gospel. I, <laughs> uh, before I married Sandy, was a stone-cold introvert. I would be a hermit today if Jesus hadn't come into my life and Sandy hadn't come into my life. I'm not kidding. This is the truth. I was moving that direction when I was single. But guess what? God has given me a gift of sharing the gospel to a, to a, to a total introvert. And so what I've had to do is I've, I've watched my wife over the years, and I've seen her by example, how she connects with people, how she communicates with people. And so I just try to copy that some. You know, and uh, I used to use that as an excuse, but, but God snapped me out of that too. It's no excuse because God wants to use introverts too. So... Here's a quick four-point gospel, four points. Promise, problem, provision, personal response. God gives us the promise of abundant life in this life and everlasting life when this life ends. John 3.16 and John 10.10. 10. That's the promise. Problem, we're all sinners deserving of death, Romans 3.23 and 6.23. All the sin and fall short of the glory of God. And... Provision, Jesus died to pay the death penalty for your sin and mine. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We all, every one of us, like sheep, have gone astray, but God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the gospel. Up to now, the, the first one is the promise. That's good news. The second one is bad news. But you've got to hear the bad news in order for the good news to seem relevant. Right? And then finally, the promise. Our, or our personal response, rather. Revelation 3.20. I'm sure most of you know this by heart. Behold, this is Jesus speaking. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone should hear my voice and open the door... I will come into him and dine with him, have table fellowship with him. In other words, I will enter into a friendship relationship with him or her, and he or she with me. That's the gospel. Four points is very basic. I never, when I'm sharing the gospel with someone who doesn't know it yet, I never diverge from those four points unless the Spirit leads another direction or people ask me questions or whatever. But my purpose is always to get those four points out at least. And so if you need training, get it. 
Ask Pastor Jeff for it. And you can even ask him, hey, I want that Van Lant dude. Maybe he can come over and do some training. I'd be glad to do that for him. Or I'm sure, I'm, I know he can do it himself, so you know, I'll leave that up to his discretion. All right, so living for Jesus means that, this is number five, he must define, let's see, he must define our lives from start to finish. So listen to what Paul says. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. See, Paul didn't know if he was going to live or die, whether he was going to be sentenced to death or released. And he said, hey, I'm good either way. So here's a fill-in-the-blank formula for life. Living equals Christ. Dying equals everlasting life with him. So Christ can either define our life or something or someone else will do that. There is no middle ground there. None. So living, let's, let's try some other options. If living is money and wealth and stuff, then dying is going broke forever. If living is pleasure, then dying means the end of it. If living is power, then dying means utter powerlessness, total and complete. If living is beauty, dying means rotting ugliness, literally. If living is having fun, dying is the end of fun. If living is whatever, dying is the end of everything. But if living is Jesus, then dying is like, it's like a promotion. It's like a, trans, a transmutation into a totally different dimension of living for him because, as John says, we're going to see him as he is. So listen to an imaginary conversation. Paul said, I can't tell which I'd prefer. I'd rather go to be with Jesus, but if I stay here, I'll have ministry with you. So, so I made this kind of up in my mind between the guards and, and Paul. So the guards say, we don't like you or Jesus. We're going to kill you. Paul says, awesome. Dying's a promotion for me. Right? So they say, on second thought, we're going to let you live. Excellent. That means I'm going to have fruitful ministry among you. Okay, well, then we're going to make you suffer. Dude, that's, that's a privilege for me. You couldn't get this guy down. He's like a Holy Spirit animal. You know, and, and I think next to Jesus, Paul is the most impossible person to emulate in the whole Bible. But we can start to grow in that direction that we can say, too, yeah, Jesus defines my life. And, yes, we swerve, but we come back. He defines my life, and life here is abundant because he lives in me, and if I die, I'll be like him because I'll see him as he is. And then finally, uh, I, told, I told Yvette or someone that I'd be about 30-ish minutes, and so I'm at 35 right now, and so uh, uh, and that's how I am, you know, sorry about that. But anyway, uh, living, there was 45 minutes up there when I came in, so I'm not doing bad. So anyway... Uh, living for Jesus means living for him together. One of my favorite programs when I was a kid was the Lone Ranger. He was all by himself as a lawman, but even he had a partner. Tonto, if you don't know the story, it was, it's kind of corny now when I see the reruns, but I used to love it then. And we were made to know God 
and have relationship with him, but we were also made to have relationships with other people. It's essential to who we are. That's how God made us. And if we're not doing that, we're not living into the purpose for which God created us. So verse 27 says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So he's praying for them that they not only support his mission of spreading the gospel, but that God would be using them together as a community to share the gospel. So going to the concert in the park, that's one way as a community to be out there in Cerritos and be living according to the gospel, mingling with the people that actually live here. So I would encourage you, if you're able, I'm going to be gone, otherwise I would go, but uh, to go if you can. And to live according to the gospel means this, that even though our lives are flawed and will be flawed until Jesus comes, even so, it is possible, and God calls us to do this, that we live in such a way that we are like Jesus and reflect his person. Listen to what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to this. In John 8 and 9, he says, I am the light of the world. Jesus says that. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 5, 14 and 16. Listen to this. You are the light of the world. The people to whom he spoke that, most of them couldn't read. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a light under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they may see your good works and bring glory to your Father who is in heaven. The world is dark, folks. It's dark. It's dark. The thing about darkness, though, is that it cannot stand up to the light. You can have a little bitty candle we, on our candlelight services. I don't know if we're, they're probably not legal anymore, but, but the whole sanctuary, they turn off all the lights, and it'd be dark as dark, but you light one candle, and the darkness has to, has to leave. It just can't, it can't stop the light. It can't. So you are the light of the world. Believe it. As we live like Jesus, go back and read chapter 5 of Matthew, especially the Beatitudes, and you'll see what he means when he says, uh, you know, live in such a way that, that people can see your good works and glorify your Father. So we're called to share the gospel as individual people, sure, but also as a community together, like a platoon of soldiers who take a stand on a hill to take it for God. And they stand together, locked together, ready to live and die for each other. Or like athletes in the Olympics. I don't know if you've ever, my, I don't like the Olympics much, but I do like to watch the gymnastics. And to watch the team, the individuals get medals, but the team also has a stake in it. And each one of those people have just, I mean, they have sacrificed and sacrificed to make it there and then to work together as a team. And so I want to say this, uh, because people sometimes make what I think is a faulty contrast here too, that um, we need to be more emphatic about living for Jesus, doing good things, than we are about speaking for Jesus. 
And I would say that's a false dilemma. It's always both and in the Bible, always. So Peter does say, Peter says in chapter 2, verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans or Gentiles or we could say non-believers that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. This is, this is harking back to what I just quoted from Jesus. See your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So what does that look like in terms of good deeds? Well, we're supposed to have a certain kind of reputation. We're supposed to be known for being a certain kind of people. So the gospel is about love. We should be known for being loving people. The gospel is about joy. We should be known as joyful people. The gospel is about peace. We should be known as people that are followed around by God's shalom all the time. The, the gospel is about forgiveness. We should be a forgiving people. The gospel is about grace. We should be a gracious people. The gospel is about mercy. The gospel is about life. We should be full of God's life and vitality. And again, these are not things that we produce. They are produced in us as we are transformed by the Holy Spirit who lives inside our physical body like God lived in the temple at Jerusalem. All right? So here's the last thing. Last thing. I'm going to leave you here, I promise. Um, that be ready. Pray for opportunities and then be ready to say something. To say something. This is what Peter says in chapter 3. Chapter 2, he talked about works. Chapter 3, 15, he says this. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So in, in the thought of Jesus' number one disciple, it's always works and words. Words and works always as we seek to bear witness and live according to the gospel. Well, um, so... That brings us to the end of it. I hope that something that we talked about this morning found a way into your heart and found its home there. And I'd like to ask you to join me uh, as we close our time in prayer. We're going to close with a little bit more worship. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, uh, thank you for this letter that Paul wrote about being faithful to you in the most exigent of circumstances that he was just like a force to be reckoned with. And I know, you know, I'm not like that, but I pray that that would be the ideal. That would be what I work for. That's what I pray for. Help us to live like Jesus, to be people of joy, of prayer, of witness for him so that we can live according to the gospel together in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.